Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can I just get a mic check please very quickly before we begin? Can everyone hear me okay? Is the sound okay? Can someone just give me a quick mic check please? Okay, jazakallah khair. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd. So I want to welcome you to another class with uh, QP and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to try our very best to complete the tafsir of Surah Al-Alaq uh, or as much of it as we can uh, this week. Um, and uh, last week what we did is we, we kind of covered the three verses and we've as we said last week, we've moved on to a, a different topic now in this surah. We have the first five verses that we did over a couple of weeks, and that's the first revelation of the Quran that, that was given to our Prophet And then last week, we moved on to verses 6, 7, and 8, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala moves the discourse and the conversation to uh, for, away from the first revelation to the way that the Quraysh responded and their reaction to the Prophet when he bought the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we saw in that narration that we mentioned last week, that narration of Abu Jahl and his primary reaction to the Prophet wasallam by way of example. So even though that the incident relates specifically to a specific individual, and that is Abu Jahl, it is indicative of the wider reaction and the wider manner in which the Quraysh, generally speaking, and the Arabs beyond Quraysh as well, beyond the city of Mecca, as we know from the story of Taif and from other places, how they would generally respond and view the Prophet and those early Muslims. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is framing uh, our, our understanding of this. And I think we mentioned last week that, um, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best, that perhaps one of the reasons behind that is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves a gap between the two, between the first five verses of Surah Al-Alaq and then the reaction, so that the Muslims would have witnessed it themselves. It is something that they would have seen and been able to understand and something which then would make sense to them as opposed to at the very beginning if they were told this as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was by Waraqa ibn Nawfal it's not necessarily something which automatically comes or, or something which is automatically taken for granted right so it's just something which you always accept from your own family from people that you consider to be very close to you people that you've known your whole life that they will all of a sudden now turn against you and not only turn against you but become your enemies and become violent enemies at that. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us the reaction of, of Quraysh. And we did uh, with the tafsir of those verses last week. Um, before we continue with, with this week's uh, classes inshallah ta'ala I just wanted to let you know that inshallah over the next week or two we're going to be doing some QP specials. Uh, I'm planning next week but that's obviously dependent on uh, how much of, of the of Surah Alaq we get done today. I, I am planning, hoping to finish the tafsir today of Surah Al-Alaq. But as you know, often happens, sometimes we don't manage to go through everything. If that's the case, then uh, next week will obviously be delayed to the week after. But the point is that after, inshallah ta'ala, we finish Surah Al-Alaq, we have a couple of points that we're going to um, do as specials. And the one thing that I wanted your opinion on, uh, for those of you that are with me online, is whether you want to do uh, a couple of specials together, and then we move on to the next group or group of surahs, uh, you know, which is which is Surah Teen and then Surah Al-Nashrah and Surah Al-Duha. Or would you rather we space it out so we do one special 
and then we continue with maybe a tafsir of another surah or two, and then we do another special, and so we kind of break it out rather than we uh, we do two specials and then we just do uh, a few surahs of tafsir. Is there a preference that anyone has uh, or anything? I, I'd like to hear your opinion on that um, because I have a couple of things that I've planned. Um, one of them is is directly related to this particular surah, surah al-alaq, and another one is more general. Um, but that's something which uh, which I wanted to see. So anyway, as you're listening to this, inshallah, type in and, and write down what you prefer, and then inshallah ta'ala we can see uh, where the general consensus is, because I assume that there will be a difference of opinion, as there often is in most of these issues and cases, and so therefore, inshallah ta'ala, we can make that judgment. What we can potentially do is see how we get on with the first special, and see how long that takes because I always plan specials to try to be one lecture rather than like you know series of lectures so they don't become too long but at the same time um, at the same time I am aware that sometimes we go beyond that allocation and so therefore I don't want it to become a month of specials rather than just a couple of lessons but anyway uh, your views are appreciated on that so if you think for example it should be two together the two specials together and then we continue on to tafsir or whether you think we should do one, do tafsir again, and then go on to another one after maybe, you know, we finish another surah or two, and then we, we can kind of break it up in that way. So, uh, yes, Niaz, it's exactly the same. So we don't have a Christmas break. Uh, we don't have a Christmas break. We never have a Christmas break, really. Uh, and so it's, it's the same. So for the next few weeks, we don't have anything that we're planning in terms of taking a break. And because it's all online, everyone's at home anyway. I don't have to go into the masjid or anything for this class, so inshallah ta'ala is just going to continue as per usual. Okay, so uh, whilst you're letting me know your preferences, inshallah let us continue with verse 9 onwards. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 9, He says, Have you seen the one who forbids, prevents our servant who prays? Our, our servant, our, our servant, as he prays, right, or when he stands to pray. Um, these verses are now go back to that story of Abu Jahl, right? And, and the one that we mentioned last week, that narration in Sahih Muslim, which the, Abu Jahl comes and he says to the people of Quraysh, How dare Muhammad وسلم, come before us, the leaders and nobles of Quraysh, the chiefs of Quraysh, and come brazenly out into the public and pray by the Kaaba whilst we're sitting here in the shade of the Kaaba. And he doesn't care and he doesn't have any, any, any embarrassment. He's not afraid of us or whatever. If I see him do it again, I will stamp on his neck or I will punish him. And then when the Prophet ﷺ does come and he does do that, then the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Jahl gets up to go and to carry out his threat. But he's prevented from doing so because as the Prophet ﷺ said, that there were angels there and he saw fire and a trench and angels. And had he approached any closer, the angels would have taken him and torn him apart limb by limb. And so then Abu Jahl returns. Right? And we know from other parts of the Sunnah, from other narrations, that the Prophet ﷺ on occasion was harmed as he was praying. Like the famous example, as uh, I think everyone's probably aware of and has come across, the narration of when the Prophet ﷺ is in sajda and they take the entrails of a camel and they put it on his back ﷺ. And no one is really able to come and help because of the weakness of the Muslims, how few they were and how, how oppressed they were. And Ibn Mas'ud says that I didn't see anyone that we had the ability to come and help the Prophet because the Prophet because of the weight of the entrails is unable to lift himself out of sajda because I mean camels are big and the entrails are extremely heavy until Fatima radiallahu anha was a young girl at that time she comes and she 
manages to push off the entrails from his back sallallahu alaihi wasallam and then the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam comes out of ruku' so there it's not just the one occasion this isn't just the one incident but this particular incident speaks about this particular occasion of abu jahl and so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now speaking about this in more in more detail and as we mentioned last week even though the uh, part of the quran or the verses of the quran that seem to speak about that narration start from verse 9 we mentioned the narration last week at the beginning of verse 6 because those verses, verses 6 onwards, are also mentioned in that narration Sahih Muslim. Even though they are more abstract, if you like, right? it's more to do with the general mindset and the reaction and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, Inna ila rabbika ruj'a, Indeed, your return will be to us. Right? Your return will be to us. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in verses 9 and 10, He says, أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يَنْهَى عَبْدًا إِذَا صَلَّى Have you not seen the man who forbids? Or the one who forbids our servant as he prays. One of the interesting things here, and Anir is, you know, as Ibn Atiyah and Ibn Kathir and Ashokani and others mention, the man who is forbidding, preventing is Abu Jahl. Right? All of them agree on this. And the one who is being prevented, the servant, is the Prophet. And even though this is, uh, you know, it, it's not just specifically Abu Jahl who's doing this, but this particular incident is about him. And so, therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, الذي, the one, it's an individual who's that one who's preventing. It is Abu Jahl. And who's the one who's being prevented? It is the Prophet ﷺ. An interesting point is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he's referring to the Prophet ﷺ in this particular, uh, in this particular situation, refers to him as his servant. Right? He refers to him as his servant. He doesn't say he prevents our messenger, our prophet, right? the chosen one, or any other term or description that could be attributed to the Prophet Allah uses the word of servitude and submission and that is that he is our abd, he is our slave, our servant, one who fully submits to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's interesting because as we come towards the end of this surah and especially towards the end of these, uh, the last few verses of the surah, what we will see is the juxtaposition, if you like, the very massive difference between those people who had, uh, who had, um, who had, uh, you know, they had the arrogance, like the Quraysh, that they wouldn't put their head before uh, down on the ground before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They wouldn't humble themselves in terms of worship. And then between someone like the Prophet وسلم, who is happy and proud and loves to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that way. And you see the difference in mindset, in approach, in the way that a person either revolves their, their life around Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they are neglectful and heedless of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and his rights upon them. And so Allah Azza wa Jal pinpoints here for us the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and exactly what it is that he does. I have a question for you. And uh, this is your research question for today, the research topic that I would like you to look at. And that is with regards to um, with regards to the issue of this word abd in the Quran as it refers to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And what I would like you to tell me please is on which occasions or in which contexts is the Prophet referred to as an abd by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So which contexts in the Quran is the Prophet referred to as a servant or an abd by Allah? Right? So which context? In which context is it done? It's done a few times in the Quran, but what are the contexts? So if you were to look at them, right, the verses whether in Surah Isra, in Surah Al-Kahf, in other places in the Quran, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So I'm not speaking generally about the word abd, because the word abd can refer to, you know, like everyone, right? You could refer to 
all of Allah's slaves, you could refer to, it could be a, a command to worship Allah Azza wa Jalla. I'm speaking specifically about when the term Abd is used to refer to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Right? And so therefore, what is that? And it's not, it's not just, by the way, uh, in, in those two surahs in Kahf and Isra, I just gave them to you by way of example. But there are more. Uh, in, in, in the Quran but you don't have to list each one of them you don't have to find them necessarily I mean you do have to find them in order to be able to understand the context but you don't necessarily have to mention them to me but what I want more importantly is the context so you may say for example all of them you find that they fall into one it's all the same context it's always about the same issue or into two categories or into three or into five or whatever it may be so that's something which I would like you to look at inshallah ta'ala and that's a very good way of you know, it's, it's a method not only of, of researching this issue, it's a very good way of contemplating the Qur'an. Because when you see Allah Azza referring to something, and He refers to it you know, in, in, um, in, uh, uh, in multiple times, it's repeated in the Qur'an, one of the ways that you contemplate over it is to look at its context and whether it differs, or whether there's a pattern there in the way that it's mentioned. As Sheikh Ibn Sa'di actually Ibn Kathir mentions this at the beginning of, of his tafsir of Surah Al-Baqarah, the principle, Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Rajab and others, there's a, uh, in the reading that we're doing, or I was doing with some other people with, of uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman Al-Sa'di's book on the principles of tafsir, Qul Al-Qawa'id Al-Hisan, one of the principles that they mention is that in the Quran, sometimes Allah mentions two terms that if they are mentioned together, each one has a distinct meaning. But if they are mentioned separately, meaning only one term is mentioned, it encompasses both meanings. So for example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Iman, right? Iman means the belief of the heart. It means you uh, verbalizing that belief on the tongue. It means you acting in accordance to that belief with your limbs. That's what the meaning of Iman is. However, sometimes Allah Azza wa says, Amanu wa aminu salihat. They have belief and they do righteous actions. So Allah just separates the two. So therefore, Iman in that context is only what is in the heart. And the actions speak about the other parts or aspects of Iman. And so this is a, a very important principle that you will find in the Quran. It's called, what some of the scholars say, uh, When the two terms come together, then they have, are different in meaning. But if they are separated, then they are one and the same in terms of meaning. And similar to this would be the verse, for example, taqwa. Right, what is the difference between bir and taqwa? Because both of them can be translated as righteousness, consciousness of Allah Azza wa Jal, piety. What is the difference now that they're mentioned together? That's also a very interesting uh, principle of tafsir to look at. So this is something similar. So when you look at context, it helps you to understand uh, those particular issues. So this is something which Allah Azza wa Jal, in this particular surah is referring to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as being, as being his abd to show you the difference between the one who before in, in the previous verses that we did last week, who thinks that he's self-sufficient, doesn't need anyone else, doesn't need any help, doesn't need anyone to um, doesn't need anyone to come and 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 you know he thinks that he can do everything for himself, he can control the universe, whatever else, doesn't need Allah Azza doesn't need guidance, doesn't need anything else. And then how the Prophet وسلم, is being described by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as having submission as being someone who loves to have servitude, as someone who is full of humility and humbleness and love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you see the difference between the two. Right? And so Allah Azza wa is saying, Abdan Ida Salla. Abdan Ida Salla. And Imam Shokani Rahimahullah Ta'ala he says, and within these two verses nine and ten, we also see within it um within it a type of of 
inkar or a type of Allah Azzawajal being displeased, a type of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala rejecting the actions of Abu Jahl by the way that Allah Azzawajal mentions the verse, and that is the question that is posed at the beginning of verse number nine: Araita, do you not see? Right, and as Ibn Ashur says that the meaning here of Araita means do you not know? Right, it's, do you not see? Because sometimes you say don't you see something, and you don't mean physically see, but you mean don't you know something? Right? So, you know, don't you see what's going on in the States? You're not necessarily there at the moment seeing what's going on. It means, don't you know, because you're aware, you've heard, you're, you're aware of what's going on. So, likewise, Allah Azza wa is saying, yanha. Do you not see the one right, who stops a man from wanting to worship his Lord? And this is similar to, as we know, when the Prophet wasallam in the other narration, when he's being uh, beaten by the people of Quraysh, and Abu Bakr comes and he protects and defends him, and he says, أَتَقْتُلُونَ رَجُلًا are you killing this man simply because he says, I only want to worship Allah? That's exactly what he wants to say. And that's taken, obviously, as we know, from the verse in Surah Al-Qasas, in the story of Musa السلام, and the Mu'min from Ali Fir'aun, the believer from the family of Pharaoh, the people of Pharaoh, who stands up and says the same thing. Are you going to kill Musa السلام, simply because he says, I worship one God, I worship Allah, that's the only crime he's committed? And similarly, for the Prophet وسلم, what is Abu Jahl trying to stop him to do? Is he doing evil? Is he harming? Is he causing some chaos or some evil or corruption upon the earth? No. The Prophet is coming to worship Allah and the Quraysh accept Allah. They believe in Allah. Yes, they believe in many other idols as well, but they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they understand the concept at least of worship, even if they though they may not worship Allah in the same way that we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They understood the concept though of worshipping Allah and loving Allah Azza wa Jal and believing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and obviously including their shirk, you know, that's a separate issue. But despite this, they have an issue with the Prophet wanting to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so uh, Ibn Ashur mentions that point of he says that it, within this verse, therefore in the way, and it's going to be repeated now, right? A number of times Allah Azza wa will begin a verse two or three times now in the surah. Ara'ayta, do you not see? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Are you not aware? And that's because Allah Azza wa is posing these questions for people to think and for people to question and to and to look at the differences between the way that the Quraysh did something and the way that the Prophet is doing something. And similar to this is the next two verses that also begin with Ara'ayta in verses 11 and 12. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ara'ayta in kana alal huda have you seen whether he is rightly guided or encourages true piety? Right, and I'm bringing these two verses together because often you'll find in the books of tafsir that the scholars when they make tafsir and they, and they give commentary on these verses, they normally mention them together because they are, uh, you know, one's a question and one is the answer. Right? One is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving, uh, putting forward a question or, a, or an issue and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responding to it as well in his own way, Jalla fi ula. And so in this verse, Allah says, have you not seen or have you seen whether he is rightly guided? Because what is Abu Jahl saying? What are the Quraysh leaders saying? What are the people who are opposing Islam and the Prophet saying? Their whole argument and basis is that it's upon misguidance. That is come to curse our gods and split our families and look down and frown upon the way of our elders and our forefathers. He's changing our society and our customs. This is their whole basis. This is their, their rationale for attacking the Muslims and attacking the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. So Allah is saying, Ara'ayta in kana al-huda. 
if you were to just stop and think, what is it that the Prophet ﷺ is calling you to? What is he asking you to do? What is the evil that you find within his commands? What if he's calling only to guidance? Or is calling to piety and righteousness? And that's why when Abu Sufyan, and you know, we keep going back to this hadith because it is an amazing hadith. And for those of you that haven't read it, you need to go back to Sahih al-Bukhari uh, and, and read the full account of what Imam al-Bukhari mentions in the, in the narration of Abu Sufyan when he goes to the seeds of Rome, Hiraqal, Byzantine Rome. And he stands before him and Abu Sufyan is grilling him. He's asking question upon question upon question. And Abu Sufyan is in a position where he's unable to lie because Hiraqal has said to the people with Abu Sufyan that if he lies and he's standing in front of his friends and his people, if he lies, then you tell me. If he lies, then you point it out. If he lies, you indicate. And I will deal with him in my own way. So Abu Sufyan has that pressure now and he has to speak the truth. And one of the questions that Hiraqal asks him is what does he call to? Because Hiraqal is aware of prophethood and he's aware and he's seen a dream that there is a prophet that will come out and he's been told that it will come from a people who circumcise. Right? That's one of the things that he sees as a sign in his dream. And he sees that it will come from a land in which there is uh, you know, a land in which there is circumcision. It's a common practice. And even though he thought that maybe it was from the Jews, he then realizes that actually when the letter of the Prophet ﷺ comes, which is what starts this conversation with Abu Sufyan, because the Prophet ﷺ now is writing letters to the different leaders of the world that are surrounding the Arabian Peninsula, the different tribal leaders, the different kings, the different emperors. It goes to Persia, it goes to uh, the Byzantine Romans, it goes to other places as well. The Prophet ﷺ, by writing this letter, now Abu uh, Hiraqal is able to make a connection between the dream that he saw and now this man who's actually saying that I'm the one, I am this Prophet that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent. And so Hiraqal has his litmus test, right? He has a number of questions and those questions, because he's a learned man, he's an educated man, he's a well-read man, he's a religious man in his own way, he understands that the responses to these questions will determine one or another. And so therefore he asks Abu Sufyan a series of questions and it's a long narration. But one of those questions is, what does he call you to? What does he enjoin you to do? And he says that all he does is tells us to worship Allah, to be good to our family, to join the ties of kinship, to look after the poor and the needy. That's what he's calling to, and to be modest, to not be people who have immodesty. And that's what he calls to. And so when Abu Sufyan, after he finishes asking, when Hiraqal rather asks, finishes asking Abu Sufyan all these questions, Hiraqal then goes back and he makes a commentary. You said this, and this is what the prophets do. You said that he's like this and that's a sign of prophethood. And what he's basically doing is confirming everything that Abu Sufyan says. And so he says that if that's what he's calling to you, then that's what the prophets always call to. They call to good. They call to righteousness. They call for family ties to become stronger. They call for people to be modest. They call for people to be chaste. They call for people to be righteous and good and people who are upstanding character. That's what they call to. That's the call of prophethood. Right? Similar to it is the verses that we know in Surah Nuh, when Nuh is telling Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making dua to Allah and he's saying that oh Allah I've called my people by day and by night and in secret and in open and in groups and on an individual case by case basis. And then what does he say? All I call them to do, فَقُلْ تُسْتَغْفِرُوا رَبَّكُمْ إِنَّهُ كَانَ غَفَّارًا And all my call to them was, is ask forgiveness from your Lord, for indeed he is oft forgiving. So what do the prophets call to? They don't call to themselves, they don't call to money or power or fame or leadership or anything else. And that's why when in the time of the Prophet وسلم, as we know, when they sent that man Abu Walid to the Prophet وسلم, to propose to him a series of 
uh, you know, kind of like induce him or, or to give him these incentives to stop preaching Islam. So go and propose to him that if you want to get married, we'll marry you to any woman. If you want money, we'll make you the richest man. If you want leadership and fame, we'll make you our leader. If you're ill or sick, we'll find you a physician from Arabia. We'll do whatever it is, just stop. And the Prophet ﷺ responds by reciting to him, uh, to Abu walid the Qur'an. Right? He recites to him verses from the Qur'an. And so this is a common thing. A person who doesn't understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't understand what he means to worship Allah, to love Allah, can never understand why a person wouldn't want anything back in return because the dunya is based on give and take. It's based on you buy me something, I will give you something else, money exchange or exchange of products or whatever it may be. Even in the way that we often are in terms of people that are around us, you are good to me, so I will be good to you. You do me a favor, I will do you a favor. You say please, I say thank you. But how many people will actually do it and don't expect anything in return? Very few, and that's what made the Prophet ﷺ amazing in his character. The fact that he never expected anything back in return, never wanted anything from that person. And from the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Ash-Shakur, because Allah is like that as well. He is the one who subhanahu wa ta'ala thanks those who worship him and those who, who, who even though they have sins, when they turn back to Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives them for their sins. So the call by the prophets of Allah will always be one of righteousness and piety. But the Quraysh are unable to understand that. And so they think that he's actually got an ulterior motive. He's come to take our money. He's come to take our position. He's come to take my kursi, my seat, my throne, my position and status as a chief of Quraysh or whatever it may be. He wants influence, wants power. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, but what about the alternative? Have you ever seen from him any indication that this is a man who's driven by money or hungry for power or wants fame? If he wanted it, he could have taken it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ara'ayta in kana ala al-huda. What if he's calling to something actually which is far greater, far more beloved to Allah, far nobler and purer than what it is that you think that he's calling to? And these concepts that our religion calls to of good character, of being modest, of worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal, of loving your family and whatever, they are the most purest traits that a human can, can, can have. Right? It's, the, it's the most amazing attributes that you as a Muslim can abide by and can embed within yourself and your personality and your character. Because within it there is only goodness and righteousness and benefit not just for you, but for the community and the society in large. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when he says, أَرَأَيْتَ إِنْ كَانَ عَلَى الْهُدَىٰ أَوْ أَمَرَ بِالتَّقْوَىٰ Imam al-Shawkani says, meaning that he's calling only to sincerity and tawheed and righteous deeds that will save them from the fire. And Imam al-Qasimi, Jamaluddin al-Qasimi, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's from the famous scholars of Syria, and he has a very nice tafsir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, perhaps that the one that you are trying to prevent to pray, maybe he's calling you to the straight path. And he's telling you to worship Allah Azza wa Jalla, and he's commanding the good, and he's commanding righteousness and piety, and he's telling you to stay away from that which will harm you, such as your worship of idols besides Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And that is exactly what the call is. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is asking these questions to the people of Quraysh, to Abu Jahl, yes, but to the rest of the people of Quraysh as well. You're stopping him from praying and worshiping him. Perhaps he's only calling you to actually what is better for you, what is good for you. He wants for you success in this life and the next, right? And that's why one of the things that Abu Walid said after he had that conversation with the Prophet when he came back to the leaders of Quraysh to report on it, that the Prophet doesn't want women, doesn't want money, doesn't want power, doesn't want anything. He just wants to preach his religion. He said to them, my advice to you is leave him alone. 
For if he is a liar, then sooner or later someone will, will finish him off. Someone will kill him, deal with him. Because he's a liar, he's a fake, he's a fraud. Sooner or later someone will deal with him. But if he is honest and he is right and he is true, then he will become the leader of Arabia. And if you stay with him, you will have that leadership too, by virtue of being his earliest supporters. But they ignored him. Imagine had they done that. Imagine had they followed the Prophet ﷺ. Didn't Allah give to those people, the, the Muslims, give them leadership, give them dominion, give them power and land and riches and so on? Even though that's not their, their goal, that's not what they want, that's not what they're desiring. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to those people who turn to Allah Azza He gives them the dunya as well. Right? Whoever turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah Azza gives them the dunya as well as the akhirah. In verse 13 and 14, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَرَأَيْتَ إِن كَذَّبَ وَتَوَلَّا Have you seen whether he denies the truth and turns away from it? أَلَمْ يَعْلَمْ بِأَنَّ اللَّهَ يَرَى Does he not realize that Allah sees all? Right? And verse number 14 is that same type of, of threat from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that same type of indication that Allah will, you will return to him and he will judge you. As Allah mentioned, in the previous verse. <clears throat> Have you not seen the one who denies the truth and turns away from it? Meaning, once again, Abu Jahl, as Imam al-Shawkani and others said, that again is referring to primarily Abu Jahl, but obviously it's not specific to him. Everyone else who follows and, 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 and has that same description of Abu Jahl also is part of this verse. But Allah primarily is speaking to Abu Jahl because of the context of the story that we mentioned, that he rejected the Prophet wasallam, that he turned away, he denied the truth that the Prophet came with, that he turned away from Iman, turned away from Islam, turned away from the Quran, turned away from the Prophet This is what Allah is saying, do you not see the one? Right? So look at this now, on the one hand you have the one who wishes to pray and worship his Lord, he's the one who wishes to uh, call to righteousness, call to goodness, call to piety, call to ikhlas and tawheed. And then on the other hand, in you have the one who rejects and denies and turns away and is heedless and is haughty and arrogant and proud and wants to do nothing except to transgress and oppress. Do you not see the difference between these two people? Right? And as Imam Shokan also mentions here, the Ara'ayta, have you not seen, means do you not know? Right? Again, it means do you not know, as Ibn Ashur mentioned as well. And Imam al Mawardi says that Allah is referring to three things when he says that this man is denying the truth and he's turning away. He's denying Allah, he's denying the Quran, and he's denying the Prophet And he's turning away from the obedience of Allah, and he's turning away from Iman, having faith in Allah alone, and he's turning away from accepting what the Prophet brought. Right? And all of those meanings are correct, that he turns away, that he chooses a path other than the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even though the Quraysh, it's amazing sometimes when you read the narrations of the Sunnah and the narrations of Seerah, you find that the Quraysh amongst them, the likes of Abu Jahl and the likes of Umayyah ibn Khalaf and, and the other leaders of Quraysh, and they had within themselves an inkling, right? That the Prophet is a truthful man, he's an honest man, he's a man of integrity. And what he says, he doesn't lie. When he speaks, he speaks the truth. When he discusses something, he is honest. And when he makes a promise, he keeps it. They know this about the Prophet meaning that even after they consider him to be an enemy and they write him off and they try to harm him and kill him and everything else, 
deep down they still know and attest to the truthfulness of the Prophet Right? And there are many examples of this within the Sunnah. And you have to just read the books of the Sunnah and, and those narrations in the Seerah to see how much they still accepted that. For example, that narration that we mentioned of the entrails of the camel on the back of the Prophet وسلم, When the Prophet comes out of sajda after Fatima عنه, removes the entrails, what does the Prophet do? He goes to those leaders of the Quraysh and he makes dua against them by name. Oh Allah, destroy so-and-so. Allah, destroy so-and-so. Allah, destroy... And he mentions them by name. And so they become afraid. And they say to him, go in peace. We, we don't wish to harm you. Leave. It's okay. Don't worry. Go in peace. Because they become afraid. Because they know that this is a man whose dua is answered. This is a man who when he speaks, he speaks the truth. This is a man if he says that you're going to die, then you will die. Right? And this is also similar to, also in the, in the narration of the Battle of Badr. When one of the leaders of Quraysh, and I think it was Umayyah ibn Khalaf, when he hears the Prophet saying that indeed I see that you will, uh, when, when Umayyah ibn Khalaf hears from one of his uh, friends from the Ansar, I think it is Sa'd ibn Mu'adh, radiyallahu anhu, Sa'd ibn Ubadah, one of them, from the Ansar who used to be a close friend to Umayyah, so he would come in Mecca and he would stay with him. And so on this occasion, when, when he's walking with Umayyah, this is after the Prophet has made hijrah to Medina, obviously. He's walking and Abu Jahl comes across him. And this narration is, um, I believe it's in Sahih al-Bukhari, if I, can, if I remember correctly. But he comes across the Prophet sallallahu uh, alayhi Abu Jahl comes across Umayyah and this man from the Ansar. And he recognizes him as the leaders of the Ansar. And he says to Umayyah, how dare this man who has given refuge to all of, our, you know, all of these people who escaped from us, how dare he show his face here? But obviously he's not going to attack him because he's with another chief of Quraysh and that chief of Quraysh has given him safe passages, guaranteed his safety and his security. And so Sa'ad replies and he starts to curse Abu Jahl. And he says, how dare you speak to me? Who are you to tell me? We have the Prophet and we have Islam and so on. He's not afraid of saying what he thinks is correct. And so Umayyah says to him, how dare you speak like this to Abu Jahl? He's our leader, he's our chief. Don't speak to him like this. And so that is when their relationship severs. Umayyah and Sa'ad, that's when they break up. And Sa'ad says that verily I heard the Prophet say that you will die soon, that you will die. And then he leaves. And Umayyah is so shook by that, even though it's not something which he hears directly from the Prophet he's so shaken by that statement that the Prophet mentioned him by name and that he would soon be killed. That he goes home and he says to his wife, do you not hear, do you, do you not hear what my friend from the Ansar just said? And he tells her the story. A while later, months, whatever it is, the Battle of Badr is announced and Abu Jahl is leaving. And as he's telling everyone, we have to leave, we have to go. Umayyah is one of the leaders of Quraysh. And so he's, she, when he's getting prepared to leave because he doesn't have a choice, he's being forced and pressurized to go, otherwise it's shameful for him. His wife says to him, don't you remember what your friend from the Ansar said? Don't you remember the prophecy he gave you, the promise he made to you? And he says, yes, but what reason do I have? So even though he tried to not attend, Abu Jahl shamed him into coming. And then he dies upon that battlefield. So even the Quraysh understood this about the Prophet ﷺ, his honesty, his truthfulness and so on. Yet still, because of that's what shaitan does when he comes into the heart and he covers it with his evil and it becomes enveloped to such an extent. And that is the meaning of Allah Jalla, as he says in a number of verses such as in Surah Baqarah, Summun bukmun umyun. Deaf, dumb and blind, they will never understand. Because when your heart becomes so sealed, even though you know and you understand and in your heart, you are unable to accept the truth. May Allah Azza protect us from that.
And so Allah Azza wa says, أَرَأَيْتَ إِنْ كَذَّبَ وَتَوَلَّى Do they not realize and know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who sees all, meaning he records all, he hears all, and that he will hold you to account for it. And this is similar to the verse that we did last week. Inna ila rabbika rujah. Allah Azza wa Jalla, after mentioning the initial reaction of the Quraysh and how they think they're better than everyone else and they think that they're self-sufficient, Allah says, indeed, you will return to your Lord. And now after mentioning how Abu Jahl and others are responding to the Prophet wasallam, their reaction, the way that they reject him and the way that they turn away from the truth and the way that they try to stop him from worshipping Allah Azzawajal at the very house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the Kaaba, Allah says here, Alam ya'lam yara. Does he not know that Allah Azzawajal knows everything that he does? There's no escape for him. There's no way that he can hide. There is nothing that is concealed or veiled from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is an amazing verse. Twice now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions something similar to this in, in this surah. And that is bringing our attention back to this reality. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows everything. And that Allah azza wa jal understands exactly, uh, knows and records and hears everything that takes place. And this is essential right, to the way that we as Muslims live our lives. We live it on the basis of our deeds are being recorded. We live it on the basis of that we're going to be held to account. We live it on the basis of that I will have to stand before Allah Azza wa Jal and be questioned for my, uh, for my actions and my deeds and Allah Azza wa Jal will judge me. That is the whole concept of our religion. That is what, what it's based on. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, Allah Azza wa Jal here is saying to them as well, you also know that Allah watches you. You know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And some of the scholars said, and this shows that even the Quraysh right, believed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was all seen. Right? They, didn't, they didn't necessarily devoid Allah from certain attributes of life. Because a God that sees but cannot hear, uh, a God that is a God but cannot see or hear, is not really a God. Right? It's like in the story of Ibrahim alayhi salam, when he says to him, How can you worship something that doesn't benefit you, doesn't harm you? Right? And he says when he destroys the idols and he leaves the big idol, Ask this God if they speak. Ask him who destroyed the other idols and the other gods if they can truly speak. A God that can't speak, that can't hear, that can't see, it's not a God. Doesn't have any ability, can't see what you're doing, can't hear what you're doing, doesn't know what you're doing, can't speak and hold you to account. What type of a God is that? Even though that is the gods that Quraysh are worshipping besides Allah that is the exact definition of their idols that they're worshipping. They can't speak, they can't hear, they can't. Uh, they can't. They can't. They can't talk. They can't do anything. They can't move. They can't defend themselves. They can't eat. They can't. Nothing. They can't do anything. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying, "Alam yalam bi anna Allah yara." Do you not know though that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is the one who sees and records everything? So then Allah Azza wa Jalla now comes into the conclusion of this surah, and that is from verses 15 onwards. And Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "And this will be his punishment. This is the end result of people like Abu Jahl." People who turn away from Allah Azza wa Jal. Kalla, la illam yantahi, la nasfa'am bin nasiyah. No, if he does not stop, we shall drag him by his forehead. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says kalla, right? And we've mentioned the word kalla and what it means. We mentioned it in Surah uh, Humazan and other places in, that we've done so far in the tafsir. It is to negate what has come either before or what will come after. In this case, what has become before, and that is the perception that the Quraysh have, that they won't be held to account, that they won't be punished, that there is nothing for them that they will have to answer for. Kalla. No, that is not the case. That is not the reality. 
If he doesn't stop, if he doesn't change his ways, if he doesn't believe in Islam, if he doesn't turn to Allah and accept the Prophet The word Saf'a, as mentioned by Al-Raghib, Al-Asfahani and others from the scholars of Arabic language, means to grab something with immense force and to pull it with great force. To grab something and to pull it quickly. Right? So the dragging, as, as is often, uh, you know, it's often uh, translated as being dragged, the dragging comes after this. Right? The dragging will be towards the fire of hell where they're thrown in. But the safa, which is the action that Allah says, the verb within that is the word safa. And safa is the initial grabbing. It is the initial holding that is done with a great force and a great uh, amount of power. That is how they will be uh, punished. Because Allah as we know in the, in the Quran, when he speaks about the punishment of the people of the fire, never describes their punishment in terms that are you know, easygoing or nice or even relatively relaxing or calm. Allah always mentions them as being violent and being, punished for, being uh, punishing and being tormentful. Those are the verbs and those are the words and the descriptions that Allah gives to the people of Jahannam as he speaks about their punishment and what they will face in terms of torment. So the word saf is very, very similar. If this man doesn't stop, if this man doesn't, and as Imam al-Shawkani says, it is almost an oath. When Allah says, لا إِلَّمْ يَنْتَهِ That wording is an oath from Allah. Without using the word wallah or kalla wallahi or by your Lord or whatever, without using the wow of qasim or the letter of qasim, which is the letter of the oath that signifies the oath, it gives the same meaning as Imam al-Shawkani and others said, that Allah is taking an oath that if this man doesn't change, doesn't turn away, doesn't stop what he's doing in terms of his harm, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we will take him by his forehead, drag him with great force, and we will drag him until basically he enters into the fire. That's the meaning of him being dragged. And Allah specifies a part of the body, and that is the nasiyah. And the nasiyah is the forehead. That's the nasiyah in the Arabic language. And the Arabs, generally when they refer to um, a person and they want to speak to them, either in terms of honoring them or in terms of belittling them. The parts of the body that they often use is around the head and the, and the face. And the general part of the body, so the two main parts that are referred to often, is your nose and your forehead. And it's amazing because look at now, Allah as we know at the last verse will speak about the sajda. وَسْجُدْ وَقْتَرِفْ Look how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about the same parts of the body that Allah says for the believer is the best place to be, the closest place to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is when you're in sajda, right, in sujood. That's the same part that Allah is now grabbing because this man is too arrogant, too haughty to humble himself before Allah in prostration and in sajda. Right, and the Arabs, you know, they say for example, if you want to belittle someone, ragma anfihi. Even, you know, even may his nose be put into dust or despite what his nose may think. Why? Because when you reject something, you normally, you know, lift up your head. It's like you're putting up your nose, right? It's like you're showing might or you're showing arrogance and pride. So the Arabs normally say, well, rub his nose in dust, right? Or despite what his nose may think, right? What that means is, despite his haughtiness, you know, irrespective of what it, whether he likes it or not, this is what will happen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often uses the nasiyah. Right? Because it is more prominent. The forehead is more prominent. It's bigger. And that's the part of, and obviously as we know in sajda, though both of those, the nose and the forehead, have to be touching the ground. If you put your forehead on the ground and your nose isn't touching, that's not a correct sajda. 
the sajda, as the Prophet said, umirtu ala I was told or commanded to make sajda upon seven different limbs, the nose and the forehead and the and the hands and and so Allah Azza wa Jalla, the Prophet mentioned this: the hands, the knees, the 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 feet, and the nose and forehead, which are considered to be one. Those seven limbs, the Prophet said, I was commanded to make sajda upon. So Allah Azza wa Jalla here is saying that Allah Azza wa Jalla will drag this person with His, and it's not the only verse in the Quran. Allah Azza wa Jalla says, for example, فَيُؤْخَذُ بِالنَّوَاسِ وَالْقَدَامِ. When he speaks about the people of Jahannam in Surah Rahman, Allah says, we will grab them by their feet and by their forelocks, by their foreheads, right, and we will throw them into the fire. And Imam Al-Qurtubi says, and obviously the meaning of the forehead here is it speaks about the person, meaning it's not just the forehead that is dragged, obviously the person is dragged, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is specifying a part of the body that shows the arrogance and pride that these people had, that they weren't willing to humble themselves before Allah by putting their face on the ground as the Prophet is doing when he says, Abdan idha salla, the servant when he prays, when he prays, He's going to put his forehead on the ground. You refuse to do so. So Allah will punish you in that way or using that part of the body and he will throw you into the fire. As Imam Al-Qurtubi and others mentioned. In verse number 16, And it is a lying, sinful forehead. Meaning the forehead of Abu Jahl and those people like him. It is a, a forehead that is lying. One that rejects the truth, one that doesn't hold on to what comes to it from goodness. Khatia. And the word khata here, khatia means sinful. It doesn't mean a mistake, it means one that is sinful, right? It is it does evil, transgression, oppression. That is the type of one that Allah Azza wa will, will, will punish. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this uh, in these verses, in verses 15 and 16, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying this is the ending, right? This is the punishment. Why is the Prophet ﷺ being told this? Because as we know, the Prophet ﷺ would find it difficult to hear the rejection of the Quraysh, his family members, people that are close to him, his relatives, people that he's known his whole life, and the names that they are calling him, and what they're saying about him, and the threats that they are that they are leveling at him. All of that is something which 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 hurts the Prophet ﷺ. And we know from other parts of the Quran that Allah says, perhaps as Allah says in Surah Al-Kahf, and in other places in the Quran that perhaps he will lead you to destruction in the way that you care for them because you want so much guidance for them, O Prophet. ﷺ. But this is how they return, and this is how they reject, and this is how they respond in return to you. And so the Prophet ﷺ is being told this will be the ending. You will have victory. You will be the one who will be successful. You are the one that Allah loves and will support with His divine care and protection and aid. You are the one that Allah will give to Him salvation and victory in this life and the next. And as for these people, Abu Jahl and his ilk and his like, then they will have the grievest, the grievest, or the greatest of punishments. And that is that they will be thrown into the fire. They will be dragged and thrown into the fire. Verse number 17, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Let him summon his comrades. Right? Let him summon his comrades. From dua, because the word dua linguistically means to call upon. Right? That's why we say dua when we call upon Allah azza wa jal. Nadi means your club, right? your clique, your group. Nadiya. Call your people 
meaning your closest supporters, right? And Nadi is basically what we speak like today in common Arabic or in colloquial Arabic. It's Nadi is, for example, a club, right? Nadi is a club. But the word Munadi also means a qala. The one who, amanu idha in Surah Al-Jumu'ah. It also means to call. And so these are the people who aren't just your clique or your close group of friends. They are the people who you will first call upon to support you. That's what it means. These are the people that will first come to your aid. They were the ones who will rush towards you to help you. And they are the ones that you will call upon first. Because if you're in desperate situation, as we all know even now, who do you call first if you're in an emergency? You have levels of people, right? You're maybe you'll try your parents and siblings first. And if they don't answer, then maybe you have your closest friends. And if they don't answer, and you go out and out. You have, if you like, circles, right? And levels of people and how you're going to call, call them in that situation. His nadi though is the one that's there on call. They're the ones who you know if you call, they'll drop everything and they come. And there is a, uh, a narration about this that is mentioned in the Musanaf ibn Abi Shayba, and it's also mentioned by Imam Tirmidhi and Imam Ahmad, and it's an authentic narration of Tabarani and many others. And that is that when the Prophet وسلم, on an occasion was praying, and it may uh, be similar to the narration that's mentioned before, or slightly different, it's also mentioned by Al Bayhaqi as well. That when the Prophet وسلم, once was praying, Abu Jahl came to him and he said to him, Did I not already tell you and warn you against praying here? Didn't I already tell you you're not allowed to come? How dare you come and worship here when I told you, expressly forbade you from coming and doing this? So the Prophet وسلم, became angry and he started to reply to him, Who are you, O Abu Jahl? Right? Who are you to speak to me like this? Who are you to tell me what to do and not to do? How are you? Who are you the one to stop people to, from coming to the Kaaba and worshipping Allah? The Prophet starts responding. We don't know the responses. I'm just uh, you know, giving you an example of what he's saying or what he might have said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. We don't know. The, the narration doesn't say. But we know that Abu Jahl said this. The Prophet, sallam, however, in the narration, it says that he responded. He gave like for like. The Prophet didn't just say, okay, my mistake, I'll go. He actually responded in like to Abu Jahl and he also became angry, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So then Abu Jahl said to him, are you threatening me now? Are you raising your voice at me? Who will come to your aid and support if you call? If you need help, who's going to come and help you? As for me, if I was to call, then all of Mecca would come to my aid. Right? All of Mecca would come to my aid. They would come and they would help me. And so, and in some narrations, it's said that this is similar to, uh, it's part of the other narration that we mentioned. When he says this first to the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet then goes and continues to pray, and then he decides Abu Jahl to go and harm him, and he's unable to because he sees what he sees before him. And other narrations seem to make it into two slightly different incidents, and Allah knows best. The point being, either way, that this is what he says, and this is the response that he gives. Abu Jahl says, if I was to call, everyone would come. Basically, my nadi, my people would come. Who are you going to call? Who's on your side? Who are your supporters? Who will come to your call of aid? So Allah says now, let him call them. Call his comrades, call his friends, call his people. Let him call them. After mentioning in the previous verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that he's a liar, that he's going to be punished in that way. Let him fulfill his threat. Let him call his people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, we will call the Zabaniya. And the Zabani are the angels of punishment. Right, Abdul, Abdul, Professor Abdul Halim, he says here we shall summon the gods of hell, right? and that's the uh, that's the um, the translation that is chosen. Uh, and and the scholars don't necessarily mention them being the angels of hell or the guardians of hell fire, but they are the angels of punishment. The word 
Zabaniya is the angels of punishment. Some of the scholars, like as the judge who's from the scholars of the Arabic language, he said that they are the angels who are stern and, and harsh and have a very strict, uh, they are very strict in what they do, right? Similar to the verse when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, عَلَيْهَا مَلَائِكَةٌ غِلَاظٌ شِدَادٌ Upon how fire are angels that are stern and are strict, right? That's what the Zajjad says is a Zabaniya as well. And Al-Kisai and others said that the word Zabaniya is a plural and its singular is Zabin. And Abu Ubaidah said its singular is Zibina or Zabani, right? And others said, no, actually it's a term that is a plural and a singular in the same word. Like, for example, in English, when you say the word sheep, right? It's one word that can refer to the singular and plural. They said, as Zabaniya means the same thing. It can, mean, it can mean one or it can mean a group. And here it means a group. But basically the meaning of this verse is, as Al-Qurtubi and others say, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, that Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying, because the threat of Abu Jahl is who will come to your aid, Allah is saying, you call your helpers. Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying, we will send our helpers. Who are the helpers that Allah Azza wa Jalla sends to the prophets and to the messengers to aid them? It is the angels, right? As we know from a number of ahadith uh, from the battle of, of Badr and other places, that Allah Azza wa Jalla sends the, sends the angels. والسلام, they come and they help and they are the ones who give assistance to the prophets and the messengers and their followers from the believers. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, you call your people Sanad Zabaniya. We will call the angels of punishment. And that is amazing, right? Because no matter what power someone may have that opposes Islam or opposes Iman or opposes the believers or the prophets of Allah والسلام, doesn't matter what wealth it is, what power it is, what army it is, what weapons they are, what, whatever it may be, what it is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, none of it matters. Because Allah has with him his angels. And Allah doesn't even need the angels. Allah can destroy them with a simple command of be and it is. Kun fayakun. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we will send our angels. And how are people meant to go against the angels? How can any army stand before the angels of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And so this is also within it, you know, console, consoling the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, giving him that reassurance. That, oh, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, you are not alone. Even though your followers may be few, they may be weak, they may not be able to come and openly support and help you, Allah Azza wa will give you his divine care and protection. But this is what it all concludes with. And that is verse number 19, the final verse of this surah. And it is an amazing verse. Because essentially what the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam is being told here is what he should do in the meantime. What he should do before Allah's victory comes, before Allah's punishment descends upon those people, before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes it clear who is victorious and who isn't. And as we know, that will be a number of years in the making. It's not a day or a week or a month or a year or two. It is, a many, it is many years in the future that that will happen when they eventually come back and conquer the city of Mecca. This is still the early Meccan period, let alone you know towards the very end of the life of the Prophet in the conquest of Mecca in the eighth year of the Hijrah. So Allah Azza wa Jalla says, what do you do? What, how do you deal with all of the pressure, all of the name-calling, all of the oppression, the transgression, all of the aggravation, all of the... How do you deal with your companions being killed and murdered and others being beaten and their wealth being taken and their families being separated? How do you deal with the slaves who are being, who are being, uh, who are being uh, punished and being put to death because of their belief? All of those things that the Prophet ﷺ is facing and having to deal with. How, what is your solution? Kalla. لا تطيعه واسجد واقترب. No, meaning don't worry about them. 
Don't worry about his people and who he assumes he will call and all the all the threats that he makes. La tuti'hu. Don't don't obey him. Don't listen to him. Don't pay any mind or attention to him. Wasjud waqtarib. But instead you make sajda to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and draw close to him. Right? And we know the many verses and a hadith in the Quran and the Sunnah verses of the Quran and the hadith of the Prophet that speak about the sajda. The verses of the Quran that speak about the sajda and how often Allah speaks about the sajda. Sometimes, and it's mentioned in the context of prayer often, but it's also mentioned as an act of worship in and of its own right. Right? The sajda is the only act of worship from the salah, from the actions of salah that we can perform outside of salah. You can't just make ruku' wherever you want, but you can make sajda to shukr, you can make sajda to tilawa, you can... There's different places where the sajda is done, but the ruku' isn't done like that. You don't just stand, for example, and 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 start making, you know, just start standing as you would in salah for no other reason. You don't just start sitting to shahud for no reason. It is only the sajda that has that place. And often in the Quran, Allah is referring to the prayer, he refers to it by mentioning the sajda from in the night prostrating, meaning what? Pray qiyamul layl. But Allah uses the sajda. And there are, there are many hadith that we know of. We don't have the time to go into them now, but maybe some of them we can go into next week, such as the hadith of the closest position that you will have to Allah is when you're in sajda. Or the um, the other hadith in which the Prophet spoke about the virtues of sajda. And inshallah, maybe we'll go through this uh, next week in more detail because we don't have much time left for today. But what I want to conclude with is this amazing verse. How often when we're you know, in difficulty when we're facing stress, when we have issues, whatever they may be, financial, family, job, work, whatever, the pandemic, whatever it may be, how often do we look for other sources of relief and and, 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 and tranquility and peace? How often do we turn to everything else except to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And Allah Azza wa is sometimes the last one who we think of. And Allah Azza wa and his, the recourse to him is something, the last thing on our list. But the Prophet is being told, no, actually what you should do is to do the first. This is what you should do at the beginning. And that is that you should turn to Allah first before everyone else. Kalla, la What should you do instead, O Messenger of Allah? Pray. And we know that the Prophet is praying. We know that the Prophet is standing in prayer at night and he's praying during the day and he's praying his sunnah prayers and he's praying other prayers that as and when they come, he's praying nafal prayers. And the Prophet spend his time in salah. Because that is the way that you become strong. You know, like often people ask the question, how do we strengthen our iman? We feel our iman becoming weak. We feel the best way to do that is through salah. The more salah that you can offer, and obviously it's salah in which you have to learn to get concentration and khushu and understand what it is that you're reading and reciting and saying and the du'as that you're making. But once you can reach that level, look at how the Prophet is being told that the best way to strengthen your iman and the best way to combat all of those pressures that you're facing externally is through making more sajda, is through turning back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is through coming to Allah azza wa and making more sajda to Him subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's an amazing concept in our religion. And it's not only the, this is not the only time in the Quran that the Prophet is told this. In fact, you will find in a number of places in the Quran that Allah Azza wa tells the Prophet that this is what you should do. And often it's mentioned in the context of sajda or worship. Worship him more. Right? Uh, the verse in the Quran when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, 
We know, O Messenger of Allah, that that which they say causes your chest to constrict and it makes, diff- makes it difficult for you. So glorify and praise your Lord and be from amongst those who make sajda often. وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ حَتَّى يَأْتِيَكَ الْيَقِينَ And worship your Lord until you have certainty. And, when that, when, and in that is an amazing lesson for us to turn to Allah, to worship Allah more, to make dua to Allah, but especially one of the things that we most underappreciate and most underutilize is the power of salah. Because salah is all dhikr of Allah and recitation of the Quran and dua and so on and so forth. And so this is something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran and he mentions it uh, a number of places and it's the instruction given to our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So inshallah ta'ala uh, we, that come, brings us to the end of Surah Al-Alaq. So next week inshallah we have a special and that special will be on uh, how this surah finishes because as we know this surah finishes uh, with the Sajdatul Tilawa, right? It's, it's the first time in our tafsir that we've come across the Sajdatul Tilawa. So our first special anyway for next week will be on the rulings of Sajdatul Tilawa and we'll go over that in, in slightly more detail ta'ala. So let me just take a couple of questions. I know that I'm uh, that we're kind of like hit nine o'clock, but I'll take a couple of questions inshallah and then we'll... Um, will conclude for today so um, just to confirm are we saying verses 6 onwards all revealed together in one block after the incident with Abu Jahl it seems that way so may Allah knows best I don't know of a narration that says that but from the narrations of Sahih Muslim it seems that way anyway That's that would seem to be the case and Allah knows best please can you repeat the opinions on the origin of the word Zabaniya so as we said the word Zabaniya some of the scholars said that it's singular is Zabin another said Zabina Another said it is a singular and plural in one word, right? But all of them basically say that it refers to the angels of punishment. Do we have to do sajda when we are in a class as we have completed the last verse and do sajda normally? That's one of the issues that we'll discuss next week, right? When we speak about some of the rulings about sajda tilawa. But the correct opinion is no, that it's not something which you have to do when you're teaching or when you're, for example, studying a surah in terms of its tafsir and so on, right? That's not generally... Uh, what it's done because we're not doing a Quran recitation, we're doing a study, and that is the stronger opinion. Allah knows best. If the specials are related, it seems to have them better together than continue with tafsir. So, I'll go through inshallah what people, yeah, you can put up a poll on the Telegram group. I don't know who, who does that or who can do that, but if someone wants to do that, that's fine. And then inshallah, we'll, we'll decide anyway. Either way, next week is definitely a special. The question is that if after we finish with Sajjah Tilawa, whether we do another one, and that other one will be probably be on the on the subject of waqfa and ibtida, the science of starting and pausing in the Quran, right, and how that's done, and it will be obviously as uh, it usually is a, um, inshallah ta'ala, a brief introduction into that science, not necessarily the most in-depth study that we can do because that would be too time-consuming. So, may the Quraysh is to worship Allah as well as other gods. Do they have any of the actions of salah as we know it in their manner of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Not that I know of that they used to pray that way, no. Uh, but it seems in some narrations that they were familiar at least with the concept of making sajda, uh, of, of, of prostration. But obviously our prostration is also different to even if other people do prostrations, we obviously know that there's a certain way that we make sajda with certain limbs that touch the ground and a certain uh, sifa and description that's been given to us. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Okay, so inshallah we're going to conclude there. Jazakumullah khairan and inshallah ta'ala I will see you. All next week, Barakallahu Fikum, Subhanakallah, Bihamdu Kshadu Allah, Ilah, Lent, Stakhir, Katubu Ilaik, Wasallam, Alibi, Muhammad, Wa Ali, Wasahbi, Ajmain, Wasallam, Alikum, Rahmatullahi, Wa Barakatuh.